This evening I want to um, first offer some reflections on a question that I think maybe many of us are having, and that is that this whole presentation of emptiness, of the klesha, of nama rupa and so on, has made little mention, if any, to our ethical life, to the practice of compassion, love. Where does all that fit in to this? I will be reading the uh, chapter or the poem called Acts, and then going through that because I feel that is perhaps the most explicit account Nagarjuna gives of living in the world with others. But I'd like to start by just making a couple of observations about the nature of the experience of of cessation that we were speaking of this morning. It's certainly the case that much of this discourse, this kind of language, feels to be very analytical. Some would perhaps condemn it as being overly intellectual. And there seems to be an inbuilt bias towards the cognitive. In other words, we assume that this experience of nirvana, emptiness, whatever, is primarily about knowing the world in a truer way, having a truer sense of who this person is, what consciousness is, here and now. And it's almost inevitable, I think, that when we use a word like insight or awakening, we think of it as a kind of understanding. It, 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 it refines our capacity to know what's going on. All the metaphors of clearing the darkness of confusion and so on are all biased towards knowing things better, knowing things more clearly. And very often what tends to get overlooked is the affective dimension of that understanding. And often compassion and love are seen as sort of adjuncts. You know, you gain your enlightenment or whatever, and then you go off and be kind to people, or to be compassionate or whatever. But I think what Nagarjuna's um, inquiry opens up, and it only really comes to its fruition some centuries later with Shantideva, is a recognition that this emptying of fixation is not just about removing certain veils that prevent a clearer understanding, but experientially it has to do with removing a certain affective block that prevents us from being fully empathetic with others. So in other words, this notion of self, which again is usually presented somewhat analytically, needs to be expanded such that we, we see it not just as a block to understanding, but also an inhibitor to a certain mode of feeling. And I think this becomes more and more evident when these ideas 
are translated from something which is perhaps merely intellectually fascinating into a more first-person, first-hand experience that can loosely go under the rubric of meditation practice, awareness practice, mindfulness practice. I mean, anyone who has spent time on a sustained retreat could well have had the experience that as their mind becomes more still, as we allow ourselves to open up to what is impacting our experience, what's going on for us, and we become more accepting of that, more willing to be with that, that that is not just about knowing the world somehow more correctly, but it is also very much about opening up a whole empathetic feel to life. And it may be in the way that we begin to be more sensitive to the animal life around, or perhaps the other people on the retreat, perhaps even ourselves. That as, these, as, as the rigidities of fixation begin to dissolve, begin to break down, there's also a corresponding transformation or change in how we affectively respond to things. So in other words, the fixation, the kleshas, all of which are spoken of very often as this, this tightening, is not only about a tightening that locks us into a kind of confusion, but it's also a, t a tightening that somehow shuts us down emotionally. And again, we're not speaking here of, you know, necessarily just explicit instances of that in our dealings with others. We feel kind of closed off and upset with somebody. But it's a much deeper kind of almost existential reluctance to be fully open, to be fully what Gabriel Marcel calls disponible, available for others. Now, one way in which this is suggested, although it's not a term that we find in Nagarjuna's own writing, it's a term that comes up again and again in the, in the Mahayana Sutras. For example, the Vimalakirti Nidesha, which some of you may be familiar with, where when the Buddha or the person, or whoever wrote these texts, talks of um, emptiness, he doesn't use the term understanding emptiness, but he sometimes uses the term tolerating emptiness. Uh, the word is kshanti, usually is translated as patience or forbearance, toleration. What then does it mean to tolerate emptiness? Very, very, it's, a very, it's a very strange idea. I was always very puzzled by it. But, again, it's one of these terms that occurs periodically. You never see it much discussed. Yet it seems to point to the fact that when we let these defenses down, when we, as it were, allow ourselves to, to not live our lives according to the dictates of these compulsions and fixations, and selfing habits, 
when that begins to fall away, we expose ourselves to an almost intolerable complex of contingencies that buffet us and impact us and particularly we are as it were exposed to the suffering that lies outside the domain of I and mine. That there's something about emptiness that doesn't lead us into an experience of life as wonderful and blissful and happy but actually is one that may paradoxically increase one's sensitivity, one's <coughs> vulnerability to the enormity of both the, the chaotic, unpredictable arising and passing away of things, its sheer, um, its sheer um, arbitrariness is what it feels like sometimes, its unreliability, its capriciousness. And again, these are things that we tend to guard ourselves against precisely by this conviction of the world being somehow safe as long as I've got these borders of me and mine in which to protect myself. So I think we need to understand this notion of of, of, of being obsessed with a reified, closed, shuttered self. It's not just a cognitive strategy, but also an affective strategy. A way of, in a sense, armoring ourselves against um, this, the, 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 the excessive nature of the reality that impacts upon us, including things like sickness, birth, death, disasters, and so forth and so on. There's a passage in Shantideva, who, for those of you who are not familiar with him, was an Indian Buddhist monk who lived about in the 8th century, about 600 years after Nagarjuna, in which he says that if the Buddha really is a person who identifies completely with the other, who experiences the other's suffering as his own, in which there's no sense any longer of a harsh split between me in here and you out there, then Shantideva says there's no way that one can imagine the Buddha experiencing joy. That his identification with the suffering of the world would be such that would perhaps be profoundly empathetic, profoundly compassionate, but also one in which there's a deep sympathy with the suffering of the other. And the, although it, it takes really the Buddhist tradition about 1200 years from the Buddha to Shantideva to begin to articulate this point, one of the most moving passages I've come across is in a very early text from the Vinaya, in other words the, uh, the Pali um, accounts of the monastic rule, and there you have a passage in which Buddha and his attendant Ananda go to a particular place where a bunch of monks are living. And as soon as they enter the community, they discover that there is one particular monk who is being discarded by the rest of the community, who's suffering from dysentery, 
and who's lying in a pool of his own urine and excrement on the ground. And the Buddha asks this sick monk, you know, why is it that um, you're not being taken care of? And the monk replies, well, the other monks say that because I'm not doing anything for them, they don't feel any responsibility to take care of me. So the Buddha and Ananda then wash the monk, um, treat his illness as best they can, find a bed for him, lie him out on the bed, give him shelter and comfort, and then they go to the rest of the community and they say, well, you know, why weren't you taking care of this guy? And as has already been reported, the other monks say, well, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't an active part of the community anymore. And then the Buddha says, well, look, you monks, you have no father, you have no mother, you have no family to care for, to care for you. If you do not care for one another, then who else is going to care for you? If you tend to me, you should tend to the sick. And it's this final sentence that really that is very striking. The Buddha says, if you tend to me, if you, and again, he's obviously not speaking about himself personally. If you tend to awakening, to enlightenment, to these values that I somehow embody, then you should tend to the sick. So, this is the passage of in, in the entire this passage in the entirety of the things I've read that are regarded as canonical is the only time where you actually get um, uh, a story of the Buddha literally getting his hands dirty and also very explicitly identifying awakening, enlightenment, with the care of the ill. Nowhere else in the Mahayana text will you find that degree of specificity, of concreteness. There's endless texts that talk about attaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings, uh, generating the bodhicitta motivation to have you know, love and compassion and uh, everything for the whole of life. But it's always well, to my mind at least, strangely abstract. It never actually gets to grips with a specific historical instance of suffering. And I think Buddhism has been, I think, justly criticized for, in a way, having these very high altruistic ideals, and yet, in many regards, not having really made much of a, a visible attempt to convert those ideals into forms of social and political practice. I mean, there are, of course, many exceptions to that. It's a complicated issue. But there's, I wonder if there's not something of a connection between the grandiosity of this altruistic ideal and the failure at some level to realize it in the concrete, social, particular world in which we live. And yet we find that one clue, that one episode in the Pali Canon, where the Buddha is presented suddenly as someone who does concretely care for a sick person. Now I wonder in fact whether this statement of the Buddha 
those who tend to me should tend to the sick, is also a recognition that the kind of insight, the kind of awareness that he's arrived at is one that was precipitated initially by his own crisis regarding sickness, aging, and death. We have this legend, at least, of the young man going out and from the palace walls and seeing these sick person, aging person, and a corpse, and they became the moments that then triggered his sense of a frustration, of dissatisfaction with the kind of life he was leading, and opened his eyes to the larger questions of human existence. What does it mean to have been born, to get sick, to age, and to die? In other words, the the, the existential urgency of the Buddha's quest was triggered by this kind of experience. And as we were saying earlier on today, it's not as though that cause is one thing and then the effect of enlightenment or whatever is another, but one experience morphs into the other. <laughs> the, 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 the question provoked by the ex- or the experience provoked by the question of sickness becomes, ultimately, the insight that is a resolution to the questions of sickness, aging, and death. So, in other words, there is a link here, perhaps a very unavoidable link, between the experience of suffering, and not just one's own suffering, but the suffering of the other, that... (coughs) motivates and that generates the kind of path that the Buddha and others then have followed. But going back to this idea of, of emptiness, of selflessness, as the removal of that which not only prevents us from understanding things more clearly, but also being able to empathize with the suffering of others more deeply that this, as it were, opens us up or opens up a space in our experience in which we maybe feel and experience all these things far more vividly. But that emptiness itself does not provide us with the answer to the question, well, what should I now do? In other words, you may be far more sensitized, vulnerable, open, empathetic to the suffering of another person. But such openness in itself leaves you really with just a bigger question. And now what do I do? How do I respond to that? What's the most appropriate thing to say or to do? And I think here we touch a point that is quite central, and I think a link between emptiness and ethics, is that emptiness, as it were, allows us the freedom to risk making a response to that suffering without, as it were, dictating or informing what to do. We saw this with the example of cessation and stopping today, that something is removed, let's say confusion, 
But that absence of confusion does not generate effects. It, as it were, throws us into a free and open space, which may be very liberating and blissful, perhaps, in meditation. But the real challenge comes when, with, 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 with the question of how do I then act from within that space? It opens up a wider arena of possibilities in which I'm free to choose another way of responding. And I think there is actually here a link between what we in the West would call moral freedom, free will, free choice, with the kind of spiritual or religious freedom that Buddhism is far more interested in, the freedom from suffering, the freedom from craving, the freedom from um, ignorance and so on. And yet, interestingly, this is one of the other areas that Buddhism has traditionally never really discussed, and that is the question of free will, the question of free choice. And yet it's completely implicit within so many of the teachings and practices. I mean, a very simple example we've already touched on. When in meditation we are, as it were, encouraged to to rest mindfully in our experience in such a way that we encounter the sensations, the feelings, and then at that point, we, as it were, discover ourselves on the edge where we can either go along with the reactions that are habitual of wanting, disliking, trying to get, trying to get rid of, which is the habitual reaction to feelings of pleasure and pain, or we need not do that. That that open space of awareness is one in which we find a freedom to act otherwise. And this is very often the very challenge we are faced with in the practice of meditation. That a very seductive or tempting or very compelling thought or image arises in the mind. And we, we find ourselves quite literally on the line. Do I go along with that? Which is like every cell in my body saying, yeah, I like that one. This is interesting. Let's go for this one. And then there's another part of us which is saying, just let it go. Just watch it arise and pass away. And I think it's at that moment that we encounter the possibility of being in the world in another way. We are not compelled, we are not driven, it is not necessary that we attach or reject. We can choose to just let things be, to watch them come and go, and to respond with wisdom, with clarity, with equanimity, rather than reactively. Now that's all very well in meditation. But if we extrapolate that experience into the moral world, then I think we find ourselves likewise if we are, for example, confronting the suffering of another person. What do we do? And we can sometimes see this very clearly. There's often the, the kind of so, so, the socially conditioned, perhaps our own um, individually conditioned way of coming out with some pat response, some platitude, uh, some socially acceptable nice thing to say 
without really engaging with the other person's condition, without really reaching out to them. Or we can open ourselves to their pain in such a way that we find the freedom within ourselves to risk responding in a way that might even surprise us. <coughs> and this happens. It don't, we don't have to be Buddhas or Arhats to do this. That we know the difference between those times when we really respond to the other person and find ourselves saying or doing things that go beyond what we're familiar with or what we thought we might have done. And there are other times when we can't seem to access that at all and we just run on jargon, habits, Buddhist platitudes, etc. And so I think we meet here in the experience of meditation and then as that's extrapolated into the moral sphere, the primacy of the kind of freedom that begins to be opened up. And if emptiness or nirvana are, as it were, the the optimal metaphors of freedom, then as we move into that experience, then both personally as well as socially, we find ourselves continuously challenged to respond in a non-predictive way, both to our own experience and then to the experience of the other. And therefore the experience of emptiness, of selflessness, in this moral sense, is one of being able to live with risk. We can never know what the outcome of our act will be. And I've spoken far more than I wanted to about this. This is Nagarjuna. Uh, this, is the, this is on page 110, 110. And I'd like to spend the rest of this talk going through this. And I hope what I've said just now contextualizes all of this. Um, for myself, it, it has certainly I've been uh, help, help, helpful to think through these things in this way, to get once again into what Nagarjuna is saying. This particular chapter, which I've translated as Acts, it's an analysis of karma, is one that I've never ever seen much referred to in the literature on Nagarjuna. It doesn't... It gets ignored, really. And yet, personally, I found this to be one of the most profound and moving of all of the pieces in the work. And I'm going to read the whole thing through. It's quite long. It's about four pages. Acts. Buddha taught that acts are motives of the mind and words and gestures you are moved to express. Restraining yourself and loving others are seeds that bear fruit in this life and beyond. If they lasted till they ripened, acts would be static. If acts stopped, how would they bear fruit? Seeds turn into plants that bear fruit. Motives turn into minds that bear fruit. Seeds are neither severed from nor forever fused with fruits of plants. Motives neither severed from nor forever fused with fruits of minds. No killing and no stealing, no abusing and no lying, no slandering, swearing, gossiping, no coveting, resenting or fixating. 
These pristine acts are ways to practice that ripen as beauty and pleasure here and elsewhere. Acts, like contracts, are as irrevocable as debts. Their irrevocability ensures fruition. Only patient cultivation frees you from their grip. Insight by itself is insufficient. Were acts transcended by understanding, insight would destroy them. Irrevocability alone survives that vexed transition from one life to the next. Emptiness does not negate it, life does not set it in stone. My acts are irrevocable because they have no essence. If they had an essence, they would be permanent. No one could have performed them. I would fear the consequence of things I did not do. I would not lead a noble life. Descriptions would conflict with one another. I would be incapable of telling good and bad apart. Having already ripened, acts would ripen again. If acts are compulsive and compulsions unreal, how can acts be real? Acts and compulsions form me. What could empty acts and compulsions form? Blocked by confusion, consumers consume the fruits of acts which neither they nor anyone else committed. Where are the doers of deeds absent among their conditions? Where are the fruits of doers and deeds that cannot be found? Where are the consumers of fruits that are not there? Imagine a magician who creates a creature who creates other creatures. Acts I perform are creatures who create others. Deeds, compulsions, bodies, doers, fruits are like invisible cities, mirages, dreams. So, um, let's go back to the beginning of that. We have in the first part, I mean it, it comes under sections 1, 2, 3, 4. We have in the first part a very classical account of the nature of action, karma. Buddha taught that acts are motives of the mind and words and gestures you are moved to express. Here we come upon our friend intention which I've translated here as motive, motives of the mind. Um, that's intentions. Acts are intentions. And what you are moved to express. It's difficult to find, I tried to find motive and move are sufficiently similar to catch the fact that the original word, words, which are sempa and sampa, sempa means what you intend, Sampa means what you have intended. In other words, what you have been moved to do. That the nature of, uh, of karma, of action, without all of the trappings of, wow, that must be my karma, which really has nothing to do with this at all. It's motives and what you are moved to do. That constitutes an act. And restraining yourself and loving others 
are seeds that bear fruit in this life and beyond. So there are two dimensions to action. One is that of restraint. In other words, of refraining from those things that cause harm to yourself and to others. And more positively, the, the conscious commitment to love. The word Nagarjuna uses is maitri, metta. And again, to me, that's, it, it, to me it's, it's a very, very um, concise, but I think quite complete account of the core ideas that form Buddhist ethics. But then in the next section, Nagarjuna picks up, or it will, he applies now the, the whole critique of, of emptiness that is running through the rest of the text, and applies this to action. If acts lasted till they ripened, they would be static. But if they stopped, how would they bear fruit? And this is a really quite a difficult conundrum. That Let's just give that example I already gave this morning. You tell a lie. That is an act, a vocal act. Five years down the road, you may get your comeuppance. In other words, you, the, the, the fruit of that act will be upon you. Because you told an untruth at a certain time, because that misled somebody or falsified a document or whatever, that has a consequence long way in the future that causes you suffering or discomfort or a prison sentence or whatever it might be. Now, of course, the question is, well, how did that happen? How can I explain the continuity from that fib to that suffering I get some years down the line? Where has the act been in the interim, if you wish? Where's that energy, for lack of a better word, being contained? How has that come about? How can we talk about the continuation or the consequence of that experience from its initial beginning. Now Nagarjuna is saying that if, you know, if the act is something, um, you know, if, if the act remains constantly from the moment it's committed until the very end, it would cease to have the attributes of an act. It would be something permanent, something that doesn't change. It would be fixed in all time, all through that five years the fibbing would be present. That clearly doesn't make sense. The act is committed and then it's finished with. And then there's a result. But the act as such ceases. But then, if acts stopped, if they really did cease, then from where could the fruit emerge? If the thing is completely gone, then what possibly can there be that can sustain the continuity that results in a particular experience. So although it, in, you know, in ordinary common sense parlance we say, well, I told a lie then and now I'm, now, I'm, I'm, now I'm getting it back in the face, and we don't have any trouble with that, it's very difficult to explain. It's very difficult. Any kind of explanation tends to break down. It's very, and I find this very, very puzzling. I can't really figure this out. 
Consequently, Buddhists, of course, came in, uh, came about with all sorts of theories to account for this continuity, like you know, seeds implanted in some subtle layer of consciousness that then come to fruition, which I find a very not only convoluted but not really very credible account. Nagarjuna then goes on. He says, "Seeds turn into plants that bear fruit. Motives turn into minds that bear fruit." Seeds are neither severed from nor forever fused with fruits of plants. Motives neither severed from nor forever fused with fruits of mind. Now this is a, a form of expression that we find throughout the text. The, the whole mystery of causality, the mystery of continuity, does not really allow us to make clear-cut splits between causes and effects. I don't know whether I've given so many talks in the last two months, I can't remember whether I said this to you lot. <laughs> but if you think about a seed um, growing into a tree, let's say, at one point you have a tiny little thing you can hold on the palm of your hand, and some years down the road you have a great big cottonwood like the ones out there. Now what is the continuity between the two? One is clearly the cause and one is clearly the effect, like telling the lie, and getting one's comeuppance. But there's no point at which you can say that the cause somehow stops and the effect begins. It's not, not, not as though there is an interruption. If there were an interruption, then any sort of causal continuity surely would be broken. Why would one thing come from X rather than Y? And yet if they were... If the seed and the cottonwood tree were you know, completely fused together, they were one and the same thing, then that wouldn't make any sense either because the cottonwood tree would there some, by somehow already be present at the time of the seed. This is the sort of stuff Majamaka philosophers get endless kicks out of. <laughs> but I think the point really is that all of this is pointing to the fact of the incommensurability of... Um, of linguistic and conceptual strategies to account for the processes of life, of causality, of change, of cause and effect, which are both, the cause is both similar to the effect, it's neither identical to the effect, nor can you say it's completely different from the effect. Simil similar, or sameness and difference, identity and difference, may be a very useful an unavoidable conceptual linguistic ploy, but it cannot describe what actually happens. And this, I think, is what Nagarjan is getting at. He then lists the, ten, the refraining from the ten unskillful acts, which is the core teaching of Buddhist ethics, a kind of natural morality almost, one that you, you, you don't take these so much as vows, precepts, but this is simply, these are acts which by their very nature will bring suffering, killing, stealing, abusing, lying, slandering, etc. These pristine acts are ways to practice that ripen as beauty and pleasure here and elsewhere. So there's clearly, Nagarjuna clearly sees moral continuity, the effect of our acts on our futures, as within the same basic causal paradigm as natural 
continuity between seeds and plants and so on. But it's in section three here that he introduces an idea that I've never come across anywhere else in the Buddhist canon, either in the sutras or in the commentaries. And that is a, 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 his own peculiar understanding, and I think it's a very telling understanding, of how it is that acts bear fruits. He appeals to their irrevocability. Acts, he says, like contracts, are irrevocable as debts. Um, and of course, not all debts are irrevocable, but poetically it works quite nicely. <laughs> Their irrevocability ensures uh, fruition. Now, the word in Tibetan for irrevocability is dunmizawa, which is a curious word, which lit literally means not eaten by spirits, <laughs> not consumed by ghosts. <coughs> In other words, they are, these are things that you do that will have a consequence, that will not be gobbled up in some mystical way and vanish, but will persist. And irrevocability, to me, somehow captures that. What it literally means, irrevocable, is that which cannot be called back. It cannot be revoked. Um, I've always loved the German word Unwiderrufbarkeit, which, me, which means irrevocability. But with the German, you suddenly see what it means. It, it's that which cannot be called back. That, that, that's what irrevocable means. It cannot be re recalled. Nagarjuna says it's the irrevocability of acts that ensures their fruition. In other words, there's something about what we say and what we do, that once it's out in the public domain, we cannot call it back. It's out there. It's as though we have literally planted a seed or we've set off, set, set off some sort of viral contamination. That once we have acted, once our thoughts and ideas have gathered sufficient momentum for us to say something, do something, then we have, have, as it were, lost any control over that thought process, idea process. And of course, we all know this. We often say, oh, gosh, I wish I'd never said that. I wish I'd never done that. For the very simple reason that once an act is committed, it's no longer private in any sense. It is public. It's out there in the world. And it will then have its consequences that we cannot foresee. It can come back to us at some later point many years down the road. Exactly how it does that is somewhat mysterious. But experientially we know from endless examples of things that we have done at some point in our lives that continue to come back and haunt us. So the irrevocability of acts, and this is all Nagarjuna says, he doesn't appeal to some theory of a subtle consciousness in which seeds are implanted. He just says, when you act, you set something in motion. You kick in a train of consequences that you no longer have any control over. It simply is out there and you have to live 
with whatever consequences return. Only patient cultivation frees you from their grip. Cultivation is a reference here to what we spoke of on the first evening, bhavana. In other words, practice, what we loosely call practice, over time is the only way in which we're actually going to get to grips with the, um, the, 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 sometimes the, the compulsive tendency we have to speak and act in a kind of reactive fashion. I mean, the problem for Nagarjuna is not acts per se, but reactive acts. In other words, acts that are driven by fixations. And as we saw in that verse that I keep repeating, uh, fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. That is the dynamic consequence of holding on to the world in this tight way, that it precipitates us to act in ways that then come back to us or cause pain and also cause pain in the world. Now to get to grips with that process we need, at least from a Buddhist perspective, to really work over time in the dismantling and the dispersing and the breaking down of that fixation, pleasure system. A single insight by itself, says Nagarjuna, is not enough. If it was just a matter of you know, having a, a brilliantly clear vision of the nature of reality, then that would, as it were, both lead us to a rather absurd conclusion that that alone would somehow just wipe, wipe out the legacy of everything that we've ever done. Now, people might like to think that and believe that, but if we think of acts as, as things that we have planted and let loose in the world, then as long as we're alive, we are, as it were, responsible for what we have done and must be open to the effects that that will bring. And I've spoken over time and they're the main points I wanted to make. Um, the other point, which I think is again interesting, is his notion of an act as being like a creature. He says, imagine a magician who creates a creature who creates other creatures. You see, the word in, in the Sanskrit and the Tibetan, uh, create and creature, one is a noun, one is the verb. Creates a creature who creates other creatures. And this, again, I think, is suggestive of the nature of the irrevocable, um, the irrevocable, and then they're out there in the world, and I can't foresee what the hell is going to happen, <laughs> that all sorts of consequences then unfold from that. It's as though you create a creature who creates other creatures. So acts I perform are creatures who create others. You set in train a creative process that can be one of destruction, one of confusion, or can be one of bringing understanding and compassion and all those positive things. But I think the notion he has of acts here is a, very, is a very process notion, really. He's not thinking of an act as a thing at some sub, uh, 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 and at some subsequent point generates another thing. But he recognized that acts, as it were, feed into the whole dynamic of our social relations. And off they go. 
And we have to assume responsibility for that. We have to risk acting on the one hand. We can never know beforehand what the result will be, and yet we cannot not act if we are moved by the suffering of another person or an animal. And yet, of course, we might just make things worse. <laughs> so I'll leave that there, hanging as it were. And we'll touch on some of this tomorrow again a bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.